We can't just sit around and be at peace with the fact that five-sevenths of our lives, five-sevenths of our week, for most people, is spent working. You're listening to Sharing Tales, the podcast which embraces and celebrates the roller coaster of life with me, Rebecca Clark. We've all got a tale or two to tell, and each week you'll be hearing from my special guest who joins me to generously share some of their personal stories. Life is full of highs and lows, and yet there's always hope. After all, we live to tell the tale. This week, I'm joined by the truly marvellous Mimi Nicklin. Mimi is a best-selling author and the host of the Empathy for Breakfast show, as well as the Secrets of the Gap podcast. She is an experienced marketer and communications specialist, a well-known empathetic leader, and currently helms a global advertising agency based in Dubai. For over 15 years, Mimi has been working across the globe delivering standout creative interventions that lead to business and culture change. She is driven by the pursuit of making the world of work a more empathetic, valuable and sustainably healthy place to be. Last month, Mimi's debut book, Softening the Edge, was published to critical acclaim and has already reached bestseller status in the USA, Australia, Canada and the UAE. A keynote speaker columnist and commentator, Mimi has featured in a wide variety of global media, including Forbes, NBC News, the Harvard Business Review, Vogue, GQ magazine, and the BBC. A true global citizen, Mimi has lived and worked in some of my favourite places, London, Hong Kong, Singapore, Cape Town, Johannesburg, and Dubai. Her approach changes the organisation she works with from the inside out focusing on cultural, behavioural and mindset change. Mimi's a natural coach, writer and creative mind. Having held senior roles in some of the world's leading advertising agencies, she's now looking to focus more fully on an empathy journey to more deeply discover humanity and empathy. She lives with her young daughter in Dubai. For now, intrigue. More on this to come during our conversation. Mimi, hello. I am so thrilled to have this opportunity to chat with you today. Thank you for being here. No, thank you for hosting me. I am so proud to be uh, in your founding course of wonderful people on uh, Sharing Tales. So thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I mean, you've had so much going on these past few months, not least the launch of your new book. It's so exciting. I mean, have you come up for breath? How have you been? I have a little bit this week, um, really just this week. So sort of today and yesterday, it feels like there's been a little bit of a, like an over a coming over the hump a little bit, you know, it's the the energy has slowed down a little bit after three or four really mad weeks. Um, But yes, I've been really well. It's been a experience, shall we say, to to try and launch and publish a book in a pandemic. Um, But it's done. It's out. And as you said, it's selling and people are reading it. So yeah, all's all's good in the world. Wonderful. I'm still waiting. I just had a note from Waterstones to get my copy in my hands. So I'll be getting that this week. (laughs) Good. Now we met through a mutual friend and colleague during lockdown. I used to live in Dubai as you do now. So I think we probably have quite a few people in common. I mean, one of the positives I found of these past months has been the number of new and fascinating people I've been able to meet online, 
And I think you found that too, haven't you? Definitely. It's been amazing. I think, you know, definitely from my own point of view, but I can tell from others as well, because of the, the number of people I speak to, there is such an openness to having conversations mm. and talking to people and saying, hey, I can't meet you for coffee because we're not in the same city or country or even part of the world <laughs> or time zone. Yeah. But, you know, the words, let's jump on a Zoom <laughs> are now like commonplace and people are really open. I've made some really amazing I don't know what to call them because they're more than contacts and probably Mm. not quite friends. I mean, you're my friend, but (laughs) I've met lots of, that's okay. I've met lots of people who aren't really friends, but are more than contacts who have been really amazing in these months. So yeah, the world has got smaller somehow. Yeah, it keeps getting smaller. And I don't think if any of us could have imagined this happening, we would necessarily have thought that would be a byproduct of it. No, for sure. And, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot is the need for more connectivity in the world. Mm. And, of course, the irony of this, exactly what we're saying now, is that in so many ways we've become more disconnected because we've been Mm -hmm. stuck in our houses and we don't see our colleagues and can't brainstorm in the same room and all those things. There's a, a disconnectivity going on. But at the same time to this conversation, there's a connectivity, people that share common interests or even people that that don't. I mean, I have a again, I don't know what to call her, like a contact, I guess, now in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, her and I couldn't have less in common. But she messages me like once a week and we chat and then we don't message for a while and then we chat again. You know, I, it, it just wouldn't have happened before. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing who, who you can meet in these times. I absolutely love it. Now, because we are new friends, I don't actually know very much about younger Mimi. Um, I'd love to hear about her and... Just to find out, were there any signs, do you think, as a child or teenager that you'd find yourself doing what you're doing today? I think when I look at it now and when I wrote my book, and if anyone listening reads my book, they'll they'll see that I talk about my dad quite a lot. Mm. Um, because I think I'm very like him and I always wanted to be like him. You know, I always sort of followed the footsteps of my dad. My dad was an ad man mm-hmm. in that sort of Mad Men way, if anyone out there watches Mad yes. Men. <laughs> he was that guy running an ad agency in the, I guess, the 70s and 80s. And it was all very glam. And you made loads of money in those days. You don't. FYI to anyone listening. I still work in advertising. You don't make you don't make any money anymore. But it was a very glamorous, growing, thriving industry. So in many ways, I guess, because, you know, advertising is when you strip away all the profit making stuff that goes on today. It's about storytelling, right? Advertising yeah. is an industry that was created to tell stories and to put pictures and words to insight to humanity so in that way yes because empathy is the same thing you know the link between really good storytelling and empathy is it's like a straight line from point a to point Mm. b so yes i think you know i was always a storyteller my mum will say (laughs) i can't believe i'm going to say this on a podcast my mum will enjoy it so when i was (laughs) three years old and now my daughter does it so really you know like mother like daughter when I was three years old, I had um, my mum had a friend who I was just totally smitten with. I just loved this woman and would follow her everywhere. And my mum always tells a story that the lady went to the bathroom and I just sat outside the bathroom door telling her stories for as long as she was in there. <laughs> um, so I think, yes, I think, as I said, my little girl now does exactly the same. She's a storyteller. Too. Oh, funny. So Yes, I think all of us in my family um, could tell stories. And as I said, stories come from an understanding of humanity. And and now I'm specializing in empathy, which is Mm. exactly that. So yes, perhaps the signs were there all the way from that bathroom door at three years old. So did you kind of 
take the traditional route into advertising of finishing school, going to uni, doing a graduate program? How did you get your first ad gig? I did. I was I was very um, focused on what I wanted to do. So mm. as I said, I knew at the age of 12, probably, that I wanted to go into advertising. And I always joke that my dad only ever gave me sort of two pieces of advice. The first one was don't go into advertising. So <laughs> clearly I didn't listen very well. But yes, I, I wanted to do it from the age of 12. I studied for it. I chose a degree because of it. And then when I was in that third year or fourth year of university and I wanted to get into a graduate program, I was extremely explicit about where I wanted to go and, and how I was going to apply to mm. that. So it's very unusual. Most people I know, I now know 15 years later, most people fall into advertising. Not many people choose, like, I want to go to advertising. But for me, I always did. As I said, I just always wanted to be my dad's daughter. And mm. now in his 80s, and I still do. So yes, I, I followed a very clear path to get where I was going. And it's lasted 15 years. So hopefully it was the right one. I mean, I love that you had that focus. And obviously, it sounds like a lot of confidence, because by the time I had gone to university, I kind of felt that I wanted to work in advertising and perhaps that could be something I could do. But I was the opposite. I went to the careers uh, library at Liverpool Uni and kind of pulled out those because they were paper applications when I was there. Pulled out these applications for the likes of Leo Burnett and MNC Saatchi, etc. And I felt completely intimidated by it and lost my nerve and quickly put them back again and never never picked them up again um so <laughs> it's so impressive to hear that you know you just you were focused you knew exactly what you wanted to do and what you needed to do by the sounds of it to get there I did and because as I said my dad had given me these two pieces of advice and the first was don't go into advertising but the second was if you do then go and work on a Procter & Gamble set of accounts so go to one of the agencies that looks after Procter & Gamble brands because for all of history, that's just been a place to start. And and I, and now the lady that works with me in my business here, I hired her because she also had started in P&G. Mm. It's such a phenomenal training ground for the real sort of um, ABCs of how to market and build brands. So I did know what I wanted to do. And that narrowed it down again. Like I knew I wanted to go to Gray or Ogilvy or Saatchi's because they had those brands. But I do remember they were still paper applications. But when I applied to Gray, <laughs> they asked me to make a video. This was just before Facebook. I remember when Facebook launched and this was about the same time. Mm -hmm. We didn't make videos. None of us. Okay. And I remember sitting on my bed in some university bedroom somewhere with a camera, like a little Canon or whatever, like a small mm. little camera. I knew it had a video function on, had never used it and had certainly never used it to film myself. Yeah. Like selfies weren't a thing, no. right? We didn't film ourselves sitting on my bed and doing this sort of pitch as to why they should hire me and then trying to work out how to get it off a camera and onto a computer and, and send it. So it was quite daunting. I mean, I, I hated it. <laughs> I remember hating doing it, but I, I was, yeah, I was sure that this is where I needed to go. So I got through it somehow. So it sounds like you kind of started, what, early noughties? Early 2000s? I think it was about 2005. Mid, mid noughties. And how did you find that first agency role in London? Was it all bright lights, big city? It was. It was definitely <laughs> bright lights and big city. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I mean, I never stopped working ever. When I look now at my young ones in my agencies that I've worked in the last few years, 
it, it was nothing like that. You know, it was it was so intense mm. and so serious. And again, I was on Procter & Gamble brand. So I was in a part of the agency that was worth millions of dollars. Mm. So there was no sort of schmoozy woozy, have a bit of fun in advertising. It was like, you've come here to work. You will learn to be the best. We will teach you to be the best, but you have to, you know, bring your A game to the party. Um, mm. But yes, it was very glam, you know, shoots and we traveled the world and Procter & Gamble's regional head offices are in Geneva. So lots of time in Switzerland. I remember once, I must have been 23 or something, they put me on a plane to South Africa, to Johannesburg, to deliver a poster. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, these are the legends that you hear, aren't they? Yeah. These stories. It was amazing. I remember, I remember it was winter and I was in all these, I was in, you know, London winter clothes. They told me that day. So they were like, can you go home and get your passport and go to Heathrow? Of course I did. I thought this was the best thing ever. Got on a plane for 12 hours to Johannesburg, got off in the middle of summer. And I was like... <laughs> ah, I could have thought this through better and I just was boiling hot for like 12 hours and then got on a plane and flew back to London but yeah. yes it was it was all very glam back then and I think it is I mean for my little story of whoa my my career's library I did get in the game in my own way and I did work in advertising for a little while but um, I really enjoyed being a client and working with the likes of, of Leo Burnett et al um, and so with a little bit of that insider knowledge, I'm kind of thinking, I guess your dad proposed you worked on P&G because of the frequency of the ads and also the spend. I mean, you mentioned it being multi-million dollar account. Was that the case? It's just that it was a real kind of training ground because of the, the activities and the money that was being spent. It is that, but they also, and look, I've not worked on P&G for about 10 years now, so, but I know it's the same, you know, that they have a formula they know what they're doing. They're not just the biggest advertisers in the world because they spend the most, although they do. They spend the most because they're the most effective, because they know it works. And they know it works because they have the formula right. Um, and for much of the 90s and, and the 2000s, the early 2000s, that was sort of perceived as being boring because they weren't doing these kind of crazy off-the-wall creative stuff, which actually they do quite a lot more of now. They're, they're a bit more bold. But either way, you just learned how to make an ad. I mean, really, at, at scale, with perfection and, and attention to detail at the core, um, in a way that was efficient and effective and made them money and, and meant you did tens of them a year. So, yes, it's scale and spend, but actually it's more the, the mm. IP, the insight, the intelligence of that organization. And they don't, they don't reinvent the wheel, P&G. You know, they know what they're doing. Mm. They innovate the wheel, but they don't reinvent it. So yeah, I would go back and work on their businesses anytime. I loved it. And as I said, I've met phenomenal people all over the world who have had the same experience. So I think they're a very consistent mm. client to work on as well. And so as I said in your intro, you've traveled a lot um, and, and lived all over the place. When did that kind of start for you? Was it through your advertising um, career or have you always had a bit of wanderlust? I think I probably always did. I am British, but haven't been in Britain for 14 years or something. I think probably I always wanted to be outside of the UK, mainly because of the weather. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the weather aside, I was really always fascinated by culture and being able to sort of integrate into other cultures. 
But advertising is what got me around the world. So after I had been working on P&G for about five years in London, I was able to say to that leadership team, right, I want to go somewhere else now. Where can I go? And because I was um, trained to work on P&G businesses, that does open up the world because they can basically Mm. move you anywhere because the processes and the systems are the same, whether you're in China, Malaysia, Nigeria, or, you know, wherever, London. Mm-hmm. So they moved me to Hong Kong with P&G Business for a few years. And when I finished working in Hong Kong, which I loved, they gave me the choice again. Did I want to go back to the West, as it were? There was something in New York or to stay in the emerging markets. And I chose then what became a very strategic decision to, to specialize in the emerging markets. And now in mm-hmm. Dubai, in the Middle East, I now in 2020 have sort of finished that journey that travel the world and understand the emerging markets journey and mm-hmm. the Middle East was like the final stop. So that made up the last 10 years of my career, really, trying to understand how we how we do that, how we communicate, how cultures formed all over the world. Hmm. So let's rewind a little bit then around your move to Dubai. That's, that's the first chapter, as it were, that we're, we're talking about today. Tell me how that came to be. So I had, after Hong Kong, lived in Singapore and then eventually South Africa. And that's where I was when I got offered this job in Dubai. And I have huge heart for South Africa. It's a phenomenal place and people, but it's Mm. very far away. So when you're in South Africa, you are very cut off from the rest of the world. So I wanted, after being there for a few years, to get back into a regional role. And as I said, I was very interested in understanding the Arab world because I knew that my emerging market expertise wouldn't be complete until I had worked Mm. within the Arab world. So I was really keen to get back into a regional role to understand this final region on my journey and got offered a job in Dubai in 2018, 2018 and came over here then. And that was nearly three years ago now. And so how had you been to the UAE before and what were your first impressions of of the Emirates? <laughs> uh, I had. I had been a f- a quite a few times, actually. I guess my impressions were what they are. I mean, it, Dubai is what you see is what you get, really. It's lots of shiny buildings and palm trees and yachts. You know, it, it, it is. Mm. It's exactly that. What you see on the tin is, is what it is. I knew it was a very sort of um, open city to expats and that there was um, good weather most of the year outside of the summer months. But, you know, it's a it's a sunny, safe place. There's very little crime. It's a very open country for the Muslim world in terms of um, tolerance for all, all different people from around the world. Um, and it's on a journey for sure. You know, Dubai is a city with a plan. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah. it doesn't stay still for long. So yeah, those were my first impressions. And how did you feel? Because at this point, you were moving with your young daughter. How did you feel about you know, the two of you um, being in Dubai and and everything that it has to offer. Yeah, look, I was very comfortable. I am very comfortable. I um, I'm comfortable in the world. You know, every time I move, and I've I think I've done 15 moves in 10 years. Wow! Uh, every time I move, I talk to other people who are like, "But do you know this? And have you planned that?" And you know, there's like a hundred questions that like normal people <laughs> normal people ask when they move. I just do it. You know, I'm just like, "Yeah, cool. Like, it's going to be fine." people are there, it'll work out. I'm, you know, I'm quite relaxed about that. So I didn't, um, yeah, I just got on a plane. I just, I got on a plane. I brought her here. We had six suitcases. That was, you know, a bit of a nightmare with a baby. But other than that, it was, um, it was a start and it, and it always does work out. You know, it always does. I think if you go into these things with the right mindset, moving has all kinds of frustrations, you know, but normally 
they revolve around really idle things like getting a cell phone contract or you know getting the electricity board Mm. to register you or something it's those types of things that tend to cause the most pain I think um and babies and children in my experience or certainly my daughter she's they just get on with it as long as mum you know as long as their mum's there or their family's there or their siblings or whoever's around them are there with them they just sort of roll with it really I think it's only Mm. later in life that we have all these fears and concerns about things they just see it as it is I love that attitude and and you mentioned the word mindset, you know, really kind of hot topic, I think, at the minute, Um, that you're just kind of getting on with it and not perhaps thinking or worrying too much about it. Because I don't think everyone would feel that way, Mimi. I don't know if I would do it so easily. They don't. I know. I know they don't because people exactly like you, Rebecca, say that to me all the time. Like, how are you? <laughs> how are you doing that? Like, I had two of my friends around for dinner last night. We were talking about some of the stuff I'm up to next year, and they're they're, they're intrigued and amazed, and also just I don't think you know petrified for me um, <laughs> because it's not you know people people generally are creatures of habit. People like routine, you know, to to stay in their areas, to to buy a house, to settle down, all of those things. But for me, my my journey is exactly that. It's a it's a journey. And I'm so driven by people that exploring people and meeting new people is what sort of, I don't know, encourages me or inspires me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's um I don't know, maybe one day I'll stay somewhere longer than three or four years, but we'll we'll have to see where it is. I think it's actually really inspiring. Um I really admire that about you and and I think it makes for a vibrant life and so I you know I, I think that it's wonderful and I often think that children from the adults that I've met those who traveled or lived in other places as children you see it in them you can tell and I think it makes for really interesting adults so yeah I hope so she's definitely my little girl she's definitely very uh, curious and very open she's not one of those children that needs like a set routine every day to you know she's she's a bit more like me we just sort of I mean we have routines but yeah. you know I think I think she's gonna she's I mean she's only three and she's already lived in three places <laughs> she'll, she'll be fine <laughs> so I've heard a bit about this story around your the kind of the job and the role in Dubai and you know, how this has really been a big part of your empathy journey. So perhaps would you tell me a bit more about that again, please? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this this job um, was, a, was a real sort of, um, I don't know what the word is, but like a real changing, poignant time in my life because the job that I thought I accepted and the job that I actually accepted had very little in common, mm. <laughs> which does happen, I think, quite a lot in this region. But yeah, so I took on a, a global ad agency brand here and assumed or had been told that it was, you know, in its third year and it was growing and it was doing fine. But when I got here, actually, it wasn't fine. And that business needed totally rebuilding, literally from the bottom up. But I was new in Dubai, as you've mentioned, I knew nobody. I had a 13 month old baby I was all alone as a mum and I didn't know anybody in this city so to try and rebuild an ad agency which is all about people (laughs) internally and externally clients and your own team I didn't know any people so I didn't know any clients or anyone to hire (laughs) Um, so it was yeah it was a very stressful time and that's nearly come to an end now sort of around three years later because the business is even with COVID the business is done really well but what that meant was I had to make some really sort of 
significant decisions about how I was going to lean into that drama that was unfolding around me. And I write actually in my book a little bit about this, that I had arrived in April and in the August, by the August, I had sort of unpacked everything I needed to unpack around the business, where the problems were, where the challenges were, you know, all of those things. And we have a three or four day public holiday in August in the Middle East. So I extended it to a week and shut the agency, which is unheard of here, to take, you know, any additional days (laughs) off. And I hung out at the golf club that's near my house. I've never played golf literally in my life. (laughs) But it was near to my house and my baby was a baby. So she was, you know, sleeping and napping and all that stuff. So I could go there and basically just hung out with these golfers in their golf club for a week. And by the end of the week, you know, they all sort of knew me and and sat there looking over this uh, driving range, trying to work out what I was going to do to mm. to solve this massive monumental issue that I had been handed. Um, and that really was a was a start to my empathy journey. And I had a conversation with a business coach in that time. And I was telling her what was going on and what I was discovering. And she stopped me and she said, I, I want to interrupt you and ask you, you're using the word intuition, but are you sure it's not empathy that you're talking about? And I was like, no, it's not em- empathy. You know, I, I never really thought about empathy in, in the workplace, although I had thought a lot about intuition and, and I knew that I was a very intuitive leader. And what that did was it provoked me to what has now been two two years. Um, it provoked me to go and study empathy. Mm. And indeed, intuition is a big part of, of empathy. Being intuitive is is a is a big part of being empathetic, but it's not the same thing. And I studied and, and started to really learn about the empathy deficit in the world and what that was doing to our world and empathy deficit in businesses and the impact on mental health and motivation and absenteeism and performance and all of these things and made the decision that I would uh, give it a go and I would turn this business around by using empathy and prove to myself and to the world that it can be done that if you you know look at a problem from a lens of empathy and uh, focus on the people above all else that you will grow and you will do well and uh, I embarked on that journey and yeah three years later I've I guess, finished it in some ways, or, or maybe not finished it, but proven it, right? The business mm. grew, we grew five, we grew five times the size in wow. less than two years. Um, and I wrote a book as part of that journey. So yes, it was very stressful, but it was also absolutely life-changing for me. And in terms of the business and when you were going through this process, were you explicit with your staff and clients and suppliers about this empathetic approach that you were taking or were you just kind of quietly getting on with it actually both I didn't use the word empathy a lot in those early days because I knew as someone in marketing that it was a word that hadn't been marketed and it 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 needed a lot more support before I started using it in the public domain because it was still understood to be sort of something for save the dogs campaigns you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, just soft things it wouldn't have been right then. People wouldn't have understood what I was talking about. And of course, COVID-19 has changed the face of the understanding yes. of empathy quicker than I ever could have imagined. But at that time, no, I didn't use that. But what I did do, and again, I write about it in my book, is I said other things that were the same thing. It was just in language that people could understand or accept more openly. So I talked a lot about making us the happiest agency in Dubai. Hmm. Uh, and I told our clients and our and our team and anybody I was hiring that I only had one goal, 
and that was to make the happiest agency in Dubai. Um, because what that did was shorthanded everything else I was doing from an empathy lens. Mm. It was about putting people first, you know, making sure their voices were heard, giving them spaces that they were comfortable in, making sure we had clients that matched us from a cultural point of view. And it told our clients what type of leader I was, mm-hmm. that I wanted transparent teams and that I would not stand for them being unkind or rude to my team, which is commonplace. Yes. Something to fight against, at least. Mm. Well, what I was going to say, I guess it was also very timely in terms of, you know, the UAE as a nation having a focus on happiness and you kind of using their happiness index. And perhaps a lot of people don't know that the UAE has a minister for happiness. Mm. Yeah, at that time, you're right. It was um, it was a, it was a, a discussion here um, and definitely fit with that at the time. I think it's moved on a little bit in the UAE since then. But even so, that that sort of monitoring of consumer wellness uh, is definitely much higher on the agenda for cities like Dubai and Singapore, the more newly developed cities who are much more aware of uh, the state and the health of their people as a sort of public responsibility. Hmm. So you came in, it seems like very quickly, you, you kind of had this strategy or this plan to turn things around using empathy, hand in hand with this notion of, of happiness. Um, and so at what point while you were on this part of the journey, did you think, oh, maybe there's a book here? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I didn't. I never thought that. That's why I'm laughing with you because I never planned to write a book. I was never one of these people that was like, you know, ready to become an author in my life. And I'm trying really hard to remember starting writing it, but I can't. I can't Mm. remember the day I opened Word and started to type this book. But what I do know is that, um, so fast forward a year later, at a similar time of the year as to when I'd sat in that golf club, I got on a plane and I went to Singapore, which is one of my favorite places in the world. And I went for five days with the goal of really getting this book written. So by this time it had legs, um, but it needed bulk, you know, it needed context. And so I got on an Emirates plane in my little economy seat and started to write. And five days later I came back to Dubai and I had about 35,000 words done. So I had a book by the time I came back. Mm. There's something about the tropics that just (laughs) makes me tick. Uh, The weather, the rain, the tea, all of it. There's a smell to that part of the world as well. There's a smell that I just love. Like I know I'm in Asia and I can have that smell. I know. It's just – so, yeah, so I – I say in the the dedication of my book, I should say, that this book was a gift to myself. It was exactly that. It was a gift to me. I I needed to write it. I never imagined this where we are today with bestsellers in the US and that like never, ever was on the plan. I just wanted to write a book about something I thought was really important, which is that people need to understand what empathy is and how negatively it's impacting society and our children and our workplaces and all of us together. And, you know, again, as a marketer, as an advertiser, I know that if you can tip the balance to awareness, people start to behave differently. Mm. When we have suicide rates that are the highest that they've been for 50, 55 Mm. years and 335 million people with depression and gun crime at, you know, the highest ever rates around the world. So our society needs an intervention. And for sure, empathy is only one of those interventions. But yeah, for me, that was a, 
a real cooling to get those words written down. And so talking about the book, we're in, this is the, the second chapter um, that you chose for today. And you've spoken to me before, again, about your intuition around the timing of this book. How did you, what was that kind of internal message you were receiving around when this book should come out into the world? Like it's a, it's a really, it's a really interesting story because obviously my, my instigator for writing was taking this job and that's just, you know, a reality. I took the job and a year later, I, I sort of really started to, to write what I had been studying. But I remember when I told my mum about this book in October, November, 2019. So just about a year ago, actually, and I said to her, I said, Mum, great news. I've got a publisher and they're going to publish my book. And she said, well, darling, that's fantastic. But who wants to read a book about empathy? <laughs> I was like, thanks, Mum. Only um, a mum, eh? <laughs> only a mum. But she was absolutely right in that in October 2019, so just about 12 months ago, nobody was talking about empathy. The media wasn't talking about empathy. There's certainly, you wouldn't have had pieces in Forbes or CEO Today or any of these places that are asking me to write Mm. about empathy. Um, Like it just was a different world. And we're talking about less than 12 months from crazy, crazy. Mm. So I did have this intuition. I said to her, yeah, but mom, I just obviously no one knew about COVID then. I just think that 2020 is a year when we need to have this conversation because we can't just sit around and be at peace with the fact that five-sevenths of our lives, five-sevenths of our week for most people is spent working. And then you match that with the fact that 85% of the people in the world, in the working world, don't enjoy their jobs. Yeah, That means you have 85% of the population, the working population, I should say, who are unhappy for five-sevenths of their life. I mean, I'm totally generalizing those numbers for drama. But the point is, it yeah. is a drama. We should be making a drama about this because we... We can't just sit back and watch our friends take antidepressants because they hate their jobs. That's not okay. And it's not normal. And I felt this, you know, for the last three years that this year, 2020, at least for me, was going to be the beginning of a conversation that I figured the world should probably hear. And I guess one of the only positives of COVID is that it has elevated that conversation and people do want to hear it. So yeah, let's hope, let's hope we don't forget once this is all passed. Well, it's interesting how you know, in the in the recent past there has been more and more conversation around the future of work, um, and you know, we're seeing co working spaces and so I'm talking pre COVID. All of these discussions about the future of work, what does it look like, the four day week, and that actually an, an acknowledgement that it's it's okay to want to be happy in your work. You know, my parents' generation for sure were of the mind, or my parents were of the mind, that work isn't necessarily to be enjoyed, it's to be endured. It's something that we just have to do to pay the bills. And so I think there's been many years of that hangover. And then we'd started to see shifts. And I know there's been lots of discussion around kind of Gen Z and millennials, you know, not being up for that um, and wanting things to change. But yeah, none of us could possibly see what would happen this year in terms of COVID and all of the impacts it's had on the way that that we work. Um, and I just, it's, it's funny now to think that there are ever discussions that we're well, working from home just doesn't work. Um, I know. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I think for the markets, and there still are markets, many that are completely locked down from a work point of view. So people cannot 
cannot step inside an office. And it's very interesting to look at the evolution of the communication around that from exactly what you were saying, which was, you know, pre-COVID to we can't have mass working from home, it doesn't work, to where we are now, which is people saying, well, it can, clearly, because we've pretty much run a global economy from home for the last nine or 10 months. But there are areas that don't do so well, you know, any areas of collaboration, communication, cohesion, culture, brainstorming, you know, various areas that just don't do well when people are separated for long periods of time. So, but yes, you're right. I mean, it's amazing to think that it took a global health pandemic to really change our minds. Like we couldn't do that on our own as worldwide leaders without a global pandemic, which apparently we could And of course, I am only kind of talking about traditional office based work. I mean, and it's I, for one, who is a huge fan of, say, you know, the arts and musical theatre. It's so sad that those things you still aren't open, um, at least here in London. But yes, fascinating how different the world is in just, you know, a a year, indeed, even shorter months than that. Yeah, it's crazy. Big change. So the book is out in the world. Um, And it sounds like you've got some exciting plans for what's happening next. So your new journey ahead, what's what's happening? Yeah, I think uh, it is very exciting. Empathy is is going on the road, really. I um, I feel like I need to move a little bit around the world in order to really sort of unpack where the second book is going. And my second book is all about curiosity and how we use curiosity to drive empathy, to drive understanding with the basis of the fact that inquiry drives understanding, right? It's through understanding and, and questioning people that you can actually grow in, in relationships and, and social cohesion. But to try and do that from one little corner of the world in a corporate job, home or office, wherever you sit, Yes have the ties of of corporate responsibilities. I run a global ad agency, you know, so I have to obviously put them first. It became really clear to me that I can't do this from that reality. Uh, however much I love my job and my team and my industry, because I, you know, anyone who reads my work will know I really love this industry, the advertising industry. Um, so, yeah, so as I said, empathy is going on the road. I'm going to start an empathy journey in early November, which is going to see me and my little girl traveling the world a bit. I mean, COVID aside, that will not be quite as movement led as it would be if we were in a non-pandemic world. Yeah. But in the next 12 months, all going to plan, we should be in the Caribbean, Sri Lanka and South Africa as the first sort of three big cultural stops that we're going to do on that journey to discover humanity and empathy a little bit more. How do people live? How do people understand? And looking at some of these societies that have far more traditional um, structures and what can we learn from them? Because for sure we can learn a lot. And in the very Western markets, in the pace of a London, a Chicago, a New York, a Tokyo, mm. very easy to forget lots of these things that I write about in my first book about evolution and what we were born to do. So yes, yeah, so no more corporate for a while, <laughs> writing a second book and continuing with all my sort of content creation. So the podcast and the breakfast show, yeah. which is changing formats a little bit as we go and and just trying to create content that that helps the world understand humanity and why we need empathy. So incredibly exciting, incredibly daunting as well, because mm-hmm. all my previous moves were with a corporate job. So there was a, that was a, that was a different story. This is just me and my little human on the road. But um, 
yeah, exciting, exciting times ahead. Very exciting and a brand new chapter for you both. Have you given any thought, do you know, what, what's it going to look like? So when you land in the Caribbean, it sounds like you're almost on a journey of investigation or exploration, perhaps, into some of the different cultures you're going to be encountering? Yeah, definitely. Um, I have to work out what it's going to look like, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, if not for any other reason, because it's a pandemic, right? So you can't mm. just move freely like perhaps you would have done before. And of course, I do have a little girl. So I have to work out how I do this journey in a way that allows her also to grow, you know, she needs an education and, and all of those things. But yes, it is definitely a journey of, of exploration and of finding stories mm. and people that can inspire content that inspires us, you know, as yeah. people, particularly us that normally live in cities, because we have a very sterile life. You know, we, we don't meet people that aren't like us very often. And I was in an interview recently on the radio, and she was asking me about about this, she was saying, you know, do you think that people only really listen to podcasts and watch TV and Netflix or whatever with content that's relevant to them? And how often do you even listen to things that are outside of your norm? Hmm. And the answer is not very often, right? So even though we're consuming more content than ever, we tend to consume content from people like us. So, um, which is why your podcast is so great, right? Which is about telling the stories of all kinds of people to reach all kinds of people. We need more of these stories, Rebecca. And that's what I want to do in a slightly different way from your very beautiful home studio that I can see in the background. <laughs> My home studio will be like in the middle of a rainstorm in Barbados or somewhere. But um, but yes, it's, it's about bringing that sort of grit of humanity to people at scale so that we can understand a little bit more about how we evolved as human beings. And I love that. I love that idea of you going out and meeting different kinds of people and providing a platform for them to tell their stories to a wider world. Because more often than not, humanity shows us that we are more alike than we are different. Um, and so we need to have access to this kind of content so we can see ourselves in each other, I believe. Definitely. And that sentence that you said there is something I say all the time, which is that we're more alike than we are different. Uh, people find it quite surprising, that sentence, and quite powerful, but it actually is quite obvious uh, when you break it down. And as you look at the world, you look at Black Lives Matter, you look at some of the other areas of conflict in the world today, um, this is what's underpinning the majority of them, which is how do you create connection to each other? And certainly having been doing a sort of corporate version of this journey for a long time so for over 10 years moving around the world and working with Indonesians Malaysians Nigerians South Africans whoever I learned that I learned that firsthand that we're all far more similar than we are different and yeah as you as you quite rightly said it's about finding a platform for telling those stories that hopefully is in a really compelling way so that people can take that back to their office or their home and make a difference yeah I mean, it's kind of reminding me of the conversations people are having now around building back better after the pandemic, the lessons that we've learned from lockdown. And one of the things I've been talking a little bit about recently is you know, moving away from competition, moving away from, you know, if I, for me to win, someone else has to lose. And I prefer some of those other co-words like cooperation or collaboration or connection. And I think in order for us to really see that, understand it and be able to believe in it, that's why your work is so important because it 
hopefully causes us to pause and think, oh yeah, how can I be more empathetic in my life? Or how can I be more compassionate in how I'm approaching things? Um, And maybe for me, that's one of the things that the the great pause, as some people are calling this period, um, is really enabling. I hope so. You know, I hope that there are more and more people that think like you do and that want to take this time to, yeah, to look at how that works. I think the reality is, I think I mentioned it earlier, that, you know, we're creatures of habit and it's very easy. In fact, you mentioned at the beginning, I was on the BBC, I was on on one of the radio stations last week and the lady said to me, uh, Joe Good, it was, she said to me, you know, don't you think that people will just go back to exactly how they were? And I was like, well, yeah, probably they will, many of them, because we are creatures of habit. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, nine months is not that long when you've been alive for, say, I don't know, 50 years. Mm. Um, so I think we have to be really conscious about keeping that, you called it the great pause, that, that great pause mindset alive. It's very easy to revert back to the bus and the tube and everyday grind and yeah. never looking at anybody in the eye and all of those things. So, yeah, so hopefully... You and I, you with your podcast and your work and me with mine can be part of keeping that conversation alive that says, listen to other people, understand other people's stories and actually connect with them beyond the surface. I certainly hope so. And so with that, I'd love to ask you what your mantra for modern living is, if you have one. I think we've actually touched on it there, which is around that we're all far more alike than we are different. I say it all the time. I think it's at the core of what empathy is. Empathy is our superpower, actually. Hmm. Being able to understand each other is something that makes us human. There's only two species of monkeys that can do it like we do. So I think that's it. My mantra is that we're all far more alike than we are different and that it is in the understanding of each other that makes us human. That is what it is to be human and therefore we need to invest into that you know it's something that comes naturally to us when you invest into it it's something that makes us thrive it's something that allows us to do better in groups than we do on our own and for me that should be the mantra of the next 10 years is how do we put more empathy into our life and into our work I love it I'm going to take away from that empathy is my superpower that's certainly something I think to to live up to brilliant well please tell everybody you know including your little (laughs) child because we need far more people that believe in empathy as a superpower absolutely well thank you so much for spending this time with me I've really loved our conversation good luck with your move and I can't wait to see what's going to happen next for you Mimi thank you so much for having me and for allowing me to share some of my stories on your beautiful new platform and yes I'll come back and tell you more from some far-flung location and you can have a new tale by uh, by the middle of next year so thank you for having me my pleasure please do thanks Mimi thanks so much for listening to this episode of sharing tales make sure to visit our website www.rebeccaclark.co.uk forward slash sharing tales where you can subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode while there if you've enjoyed what you've heard we'd really appreciate a review and a rating to help other people find this show if you'd like to tell your friends and family that would be amazing too big thanks to our sound producer and editor the wonderful erin mcguire at beyondgolia productions Be sure to tune in next Monday for a new episode. Bye-bye for now.